I cannot tell you the number of times I've been the token young person on a panel, the token young person in a room, and it's very much this narrative of, okay, great, we've really messed up the planet. Like We've made a lot of mistakes. So here's the baton. Good luck. You know, Godspeed. You're going to smash this. And, and, And I often hear that, like, you know, after speeches and things, like people are saying, great job, you're fighting the good fight, you know, keep going. And I'm like, are you serious? (laughs) That's what you took from this? How the devil are hello. you? Will you stop <laughs> shouting in my ear holes? Hello, ridiculous. hello, hello, and welcome to Sustainable 185. Welcome yourself all to Sustainable 185, my splendidly haired chum. Um, there's no point asking you how you are, because we recorded this oh, about a month ago, so who knows what's happened. Brentford have been promoted or not promoted, probably. Um, who knows? Who knows what's happened? Oh, who knows? Dave. I know. Congratulations to Fulham, to Scott Parker, his coaching staff, uh, everybody involved with Fulham. Um, they are in the Prem next year, and I wish them the best of luck. Um, of course. And it's, yeah, it's the tough. world may have uh, got better, worse, let's face it, probably worse, but maybe better in small ways. And we are here to talk today in Sustainable, your friendly weekly environment podcast, all about making the world better in small and big ways. Yes? Yes. Good. How do we, uh, go on, how are we doing that then? <laughs> yes, we. I'm out. Well, luckily. Luckily, we're talking to somebody who is much better at expressing all of these things than we are. We are talking to Clover Hogan, who uh, is a climate activist. Who is, not a, who is not a town in the Netherlands, which is what I thought when I first heard it. Clover Hogan. I suppose Clover, Clover, Clover Hogan. Clover, Clover Hogan could be a town. Yes. Yeah. Well, we but didn't get around to asking her about that, which I'm sure she's devastated about. Anyway, she's not a town in the, in the Netherlands. She is a climate activist and the founder and director of Force of Nature, which is a group that uh, works with young people to overcome that sense of powerlessness in the face of the climate emergency Um, and she's also a researcher on climate anxiety so uh, we talk about all of those things and more it is uh, a wonderful chat if we do say so ourselves clover is one of the most eloquent and powerful and persuasive speakers i've ever encountered in this space and she is also well nice and great fun so uh, do enjoy listening to this Indeed so. Uh, so just the usual disclaimer, uh, all and indeed Clover do work for environmental charities, but these are very much their own views. So if you've got any beef at all, send them my way and I'll tell you what I think about it. <laughs> Excellent. Are you now my enforcer? I like, yeah. I like that. <laughs> Mr. Oh, yeah, you had a problem with uh, something Mr. <laughs> Ol said, is that right? I'd hate for anything bad for you to happen on the way home. That's a nice keyboard you got there. Shame if that got stuck somewhere. <laughs> Should we get on with it? Good. On with it. Well, 
Well, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you uh, is is because of all of the work that you've done and and the podcasting you've done uh, on your new podcast about the force of nature, uh, specifically about eco anxiety, which is a big thing. Which is a big thing, and we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, but often. I guess coming at it from our own perspective, and our perspective is two depressingly old uh, folk. I mean, not that old, but you know, that, well, Dave's quite old. But uh, will you feel, get on with it? Old. Will but, you get on with it? But that is not the perspective of people who, for instance, are going to, you know, by the time they are our age, they're going to know whether or not we have, as a society, cut carbon sufficiently to stave off calamitous ecological mm. collapse. So, when you talk to people in that age group. What's their experience of eco-anxiety? What's their, how do they portray it? How do they exhibit it? And, and what do they feel about it? Yeah, so we've been running classrooms, online classrooms with young people from Morocco through South Africa, through Jakarta and Indonesia. And all of these young people are citing feelings of crippling eco-anxiety. Um, so eco-anxiety for background is any feeling of fear or um, overwhelm or grief around the impending uh, climate collapse or ecological breakdown, um, close cousin to ecophobia, which relates specifically to the feeling of powerlessness in the face of these problems. So that's when you look at the climate crisis um, and you're hyper aware of your own own smallness in the face of it. Um, so we've been hearing stories of eco-anxiety from literally every corner of the planet, but I first came into awareness of, of this crippling anxiety when I started working in classrooms in the UK. And I think we have a tendency to look to young people and think, oh, okay, they feel super empowered and they're taking action. You know, they're kind of banner blazing out. They're super vocal. Um, and you, you sit down and have conversations with them and they're incredibly anxious. They're incredibly overwhelmed. Um, they're talking about these very dystopian visions of the future. So I would have young people talk about, you know, cities underwater, cities plagued by famine, um, you know, an unlivable planet and how that would then manifest by way of, you know, the decisions they were making in their daily lives. You know, I would have an 11 year old tell me, well, I'm not going to go to university because what's the point of getting a career on an unlivable planet? Or I would have a 14-year-old girl tell me, I'm not going to have kids. <laughs> At this early age, I've decided not to have children because it would be incredibly irresponsible to bring them into this world. So we're seeing eco-anxiety um, kind of crop up everywhere and all of the research reflects that. So recent research has showed that, you know, over 75% of young people in the UK um, are cited as having eco-anxiety and massive. it's part of a, it's massive. It's absolutely massive. And it's part of a much larger kind of epidemic of mental health problems within my generation. Since I'm an animal lover. Now they're suffering because of climate change. How does that make you feel? It makes me worried. Uh, what's that stat that I saw in, um, I think it was Reuters or someone had covered it, that one in five kids report having nightmares about climate change or something. Did you see that? Mm. Either of you see that? Um, I, haven't, I haven't seen that research, but it strikes um, me as I method, wouldn't be surprised. Method, methodologically suspicious, if you want my opinion, but that is another, <laughs> another matter entirely. But still, yeah, I mean, it's amazing, right? And do you think there is one of the, 
in response to that article, one of the things people had said is they said, that's all that Greta Thunberg's fault. She has gone and indoctrinated our kids and made them all scared. And uh, they shouldn't be scared. It'll be fine. But they're being told lies and propaganda. Do you think that's fair? I suspect you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely do. I not wonder how Flav is going to answer that question, Dave. <laughs> so, yes, oh. let me let me take the diplomatic middle ground. No, um, I think it's I think it's completely. Um, I mean, I find it really interesting when people do say that because I think it speaks to a much deeper seated fear um, that a lot of adults experience um, around you know the state of the world. It it it, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to read the science and realize that we're in a really really dire position. You know, with all of our current trajectories, we're looking at massive sea level rise. We're looking at a million species on the brink of extinction. We're looking at potentially a billion climate migrants by 2050, right? So, you know, it, it doesn't take much. And we live in a hyper-connected society, right? I go on Twitter as a young person. I go on TikTok. I go on Snapchat. Like, it's right there. There is no way to guard young people from it. And actually, why would you want to? You know, so much of the passion and frustration of young people taking to the streets comes from the sense that we've been kept in the dark intentionally, you know, mm. that we've had this kind of veil pulled over our eyes. Now we're waking up to it and we're saying, okay, our house is on fire. We're continuing to sing this pretty song and, and dance this pretty dance on the side without addressing the problem. And yet we're ultimately the generation that's going to be inheriting all of these challenges. Um, so, you know, young people have every right to experience that equal anxiety. I completely empathize with parents who want to shelter their children from those emotions. But no matter your age, you're going to be exposed to the reality of the situation. And it's incredibly negligent to try and protect or safeguard young people from that. We need to have these conversations around the dinner table as much as we do within boardrooms. Um, and one of the best ways to alleviate that eco-anxiety is to become aware of your sense of agency and what you can actually do to take on the problem. But if you try to suppress it, it's just going to catch up with you eventually. So I feel a bit negligent on that front I've, because, uh, <laughs> I mean, I feel negligent on a number of fronts, but but particularly on that one. So I, I have a three-year-old and a, and a one-year-old as well. But increasingly, you know, the three-year-old asks me all sorts of very searching questions, which every parent, I'm sure, will, you know, share experiences of. And it's all the straightforward stuff, like, you know, why is such and such dead? Or And you're like, um, uh, <laughs> taboo. We don't talk about death. Taboo. And you're like, why don't we talk about death? We should talk about death. Death is normal. Mm -hmm. um, but I am increasingly aware of, like, you know, he is growing a love of the natural world and it I love that and I try and foster it but it also it gives me a sense of grief because I'm like oh god oh god you know he doesn't know that this is all in peril so mm. I mean how how soon how young should I start bringing up the reality of what's going on um, mm. I mean, you, you. Well, I guess that's a question. How young? How young should I start? This <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I don't mean this to be self-help, but I could do it. So go and wake him up and bring him in and out. We'll just get Clover to do it directly. We'll cut you out. Be fine. You are wired into the rest of your family. You have the ability to shock them, 
And they have the ability to shock. When I was walking through the Natural History Museum with my six-year-old cousin, um, we had at no point had a conversation about climate change. We'd had some conversations about recycling, very, very topical kind of sustainability problems. Um, But she turned to me and completely out of the blue, unprovoked, she said, what are we going to do about climate change? And what is global warming? And am I going to have a future? Just all in rapid succession, ask those questions. Whoa. And to presume the answer is, um, shall we go and get an ice cream? There's a, there's a nice ice cream over here. Look at the dinosaur. Yeah, exactly. And, and try not to turn it then into an analogy about how quickly her ice cream is going to melt in a rapidly heating planet. Um, but... You know, it was the first time that I was really able to empathize with a parent in that situation who has a young person turning to you with big doe eyes asking you about the state of the world and and what's going to happen. Of course, you want to kind of wrap them in your arms and protect them and tell them everything's going to be okay. Um, But that is ultimately a betrayal of trust. Now, I'm not telling any parent or, or any adult to... Uh, traumatize young people by suddenly laying out the shittiness of the situation and um, the terrible state of the world. But we do have a responsibility to navigate these really difficult conversations. Now, a three-year-old, I'm not sure if it's necessary to um, begin talking about it, but as that natural kind of inquisitiveness develops and as they cultivate that curiosity, questions are naturally going to come up. And when they do, I think it's much better that you're in a position to navigate those conversations than them finding it out, finding all of the information out through the doomsday kind of black hole that is Twitter or, you know, online media or anything like that. Um, So, you know, young people are having these conversations in the schoolyard. They're having these conversations with their teachers. Um, So we need to take the responsibility to have those conversations in all of these places. Um, But just do it with a lot of sensitivity and a lot of care. And I think part of the challenge that I've experienced um, with with adults not wanting to have these conversations is the fact that we don't have all of the answers. Um, And that's a really confronting reality. You know, like the reality is we don't know if we're going to solve the climate crisis. We want to be able to conclusively say that we're going to be able to rally the troops and we're going to be able to do enough, but we don't know, (laughs) you know, we fundamentally don't know. And I think it's actually very healthy to develop a relationship with uh, a healthy relationship with uncertainty from a young age. Um, so while you can't make promises about the future, you can make promises about how you're going to support your young person um, to do everything you can in your power to take action on the issues that matter and to support them to do the same thing. But I was wondering whether you think like lockdown has made eco-anxiety worse or maybe it's had a weird different effect because we've been paying more attention to stuff. What's your experience been? I think it's been a real amplifier for a lot of underlying anxiety. Um, From the climate perspective, there are a few things. Young people, many of them had found their outlet for agency um, 
and they'd found ways to cope with their eco-anxiety through grassroots mobilizing. So we saw this incredible kind of, um, you know, uptake of the youth strikes for climate and millions of young people around the world taking to the streets in solidarity with one another, you know, finding friends through that kind of tribalism. And I think that was how they coped, you know, with the reality of the situation. And then suddenly you're in lockdown. Suddenly you're disconnected from those people. You're disconnected from the mission. Uh, suddenly you're not hearing about the climate crisis at all. So you're still incredibly worried about it. You're still incredibly overwhelmed. And yet the entire media cycle is um, inundated with COVID. Um, which creates its own kind of anxiety sphere. You know, if we do go back to business as usual, we're actually going to be in a much worse place than when we started lockdown to address oh. the climate crisis. Oh dear. Yeah. So, so I would say by and large, I think it's been a really, really hard time for people everywhere in terms of their mental health and mm. um, for sure has been ex- an exacerbator of existing eco-anxiety. Um, but I would say that there, there have also been like glimmers of hope. I think many of us are aware of having kind of pressed out pressed pause on our hyper consumptive globalized kind of throwaway culture and it has given us a window of time to actually think about what it is we do want to invite into the future and what it is that we do want to leave behind and i know that that was something I was re- reflecting to a friend when we first went into lockdown was like, suddenly it was the alleviation of all of these social pressures oh, no to conform FOMO. to a certain no way FOMO. of living. No FOMO, no FOMO. Literally, FOMO. Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, you know, and I think especially with our generation, you know, there's this constant pressure and it sounds ridiculous, but to be posting on Instagram all the time with a different outfit every time, every day and to be showing a very glamorous kind of lifestyle and to constantly be jetting around and suddenly all of that was taken away and we we're like oh wow we have time to do the things that we really care about um so so it's it's been a mixed bag for sure um and i just hope that the positives we've picked up along the way we can carry forward into the future and that because people are now feeling so antsy and frustrated we don't just desperately cling to business as usual and, and go back to hyper consumption and buying things at primark and whatever that is <laughs> Rage, come on, I'm not going to wear any of this. Nothing silver, okay? Nothing with hair. And nothing with padlocks on it. So you say as part of uh, Force of Nature... The, uh, and, and lots of things you say that you're on a mission to mobilise mindsets on uh, mass, which is very nice and alliterative. I just realised, uh, <laughs> although I can't say the word. Uh, and, and but you sort of say that as that that's the biggest challenge to overcoming the, the climate emergency. So, so is is your basic hypothesis that our our kind of failure so far collectively to overcome the climate crisis is is as much a problem inside our heads as it is anything else and what what's holding us back if that's true my kind of aha moment came at cop 21 when i was at an event called the sustainable innovation forum um sponsored by coca-cola and bmw which was my first (sighs) we we should have been at that 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 was (laughs) set up for the babble that sort of event fantastic Yeah. yeah And so that was my first real introduction to greenwashing on such a blatant level. 
And I was having a conversation with a uh, politician, politician in a stuffy suit, um, who clearly did not appreciate why this was such a critical moment in history. And I felt so overwhelmed by the system. I felt so frustrated by my smallness in the context of that huge machine that I felt powerless and I felt completely helpless to make a difference. And I was hyper aware of being one person in 7.6 billion. And it was with that realization that I saw that the threat even greater than the climate crisis, even greater than ecological breakdown, is the universal feeling of powerlessness in the face of it. Now, I've become super well acquainted with this feeling in classrooms, working with young people, 11, 12, 13 years old, who look to people in positions of power and see them not acting, who look to their parents and see them not in allyship with them, who look to their teachers and see them avoiding the conversations. But most strikingly, I've experienced this powerlessness in every boardroom I've ever worked in. So, you know, I've worked in the boardrooms of multinationals, working with companies like Procter & Gamble, of PepsiCo, companies that touch billions of lives every single day. And in these spaces, I have heard leaders, executives tell me, I'm too small to make a difference. The system is too broken to create meaningful change. I'm just one in 7.8 billion people. It's not up to me. I'm not the expert. So you continue to hear these stories on repeat. And as the objective spectator, you're left wondering, how on earth do you feel that way when you have so much perceived power? But each of us always contextualizes ourselves as one in the face of an enormous challenge. We are fighting for our lives. But not only that, we are also fighting for our future children and grandchildren. The climate crisis is unique in that not only is it a symptom of all of these broken systems, from how we get around, to the food in our fridges, um, to who we elect into power, to a centuries-long history of the subjugation and exploitation of communities of color around the world. Not only is it a symptom of those systems, but by the nature of living a privileged lifestyle, I am contributing to that problem. And that's a really difficult reality to wake up to. When I go to the supermarket, I'm contributing to the climate crisis. Mm. When I go shopping on the high street, I'm contributing to the climate crisis. And so, of course, this cultivates a sense of being powerless because you realize that you're complicit. It's not easy to isolate the problem. The climate crisis is always talked about on this macro global overwhelming level. And so it's not something you connect to your backyard. And that is as much a failing of how we've communicated the climate crisis as it is um, the nature of the problem itself. So I absolutely believe that it is a greater threat. And I believe that if we can mobilize enough mindsets to uh, take ownership of the problems and to realize not just our responsibility, but our role, you know, the incredible role that each of us has to play to take on this problem, um, then the world will look like a radically different place. And we have uh, that much higher likelihood of being able to actually solve the climate crisis. So I guess this is the obvious question. So then what? So what is it that we... (laughs) 
because it is definitely the case that we're all complicit mm. in a system and yet at the same time it's not any of our fault at the same time mm. right that's true yeah. so what is it we need to change in our brains but more importantly maybe what do we need to change in how we behave how do we make a change to those big systems in a way that yeah. isn't just like uh, shopping slightly greener or something like that Yeah, it's an awesome question. Um, One of the enormous challenges is that the way we think about activism is broken. (laughs) Um, And I choose those words carefully. For a long time, we've been told that the best thing we can do to take on the climate crisis is to change our light bulbs. Now, there has been a very concerted effort from people in power, from the fossil fuel industry, from big multinationals, to put the onus back on the individual, to say, it's up to you, it's you making token changes in your lifestyle, and you should be guilted into making those changes, right? It's your fault there's Coca-Cola tins everywhere, that's your fault. (laughs) That's not our fault. Exactly, exactly. We 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 talked about an amazing ad campaign that um that oh, what was it called? It's something like Keep America Beautiful or something, which was like from the fifties, and it was mm. it was paid for by all the people you just described, and it was it was <laughs> I think the tagline was like humans cause litter, humans can clear it up or something, yeah. and it was like that's cited as the beginning of this whole kind of look. Yes. This is the problem of individual behaviour. It's not the fa- you know the fact that we're making billions of these things that can't be thrown away is not relevant here yeah. it's it's exactly <laughs> exactly and and i mean a really good example of this you know i grew up in bali in indonesia and it's a beautiful beautiful island um for a long time has been completely pristine and and the people in bali are very connected to the natural environment um you know for for most of their existence they wrapped everything in banana leaves right um which they would throw into the river would you know compost break down whatever no consequences suddenly we in introduced um, petroleum-based plastics and the behavior doesn't change. So everything's now wrapped in disposable plastic. It still goes in the river um, and it ends up with an entirely polluted environment, a polluted island where you go swimming and you see more plastic bags, more plastic packaging than you do fish in the ocean. Now, who's to blame in that equation? Companies want you to believe that it's the individual, right? And they somehow try to argue that on a moral level, an individual's actions are somehow equate to a company that touches billions of lives every single day, um, even though they're, they have the potential to create the same impact that those billions of people do, right? So for a long time, there's been an effort to create that particular narrative. And again, it contributes to that sense of powerlessness, right? Because I can do everything on my level, on my individual level. I can make the monthly donations. I can turn off the lights when I leave a room. I can be super conscious and super vigilant about being conscious about my footprint. And maybe that empowers you and maybe that makes you feel good and sways you in the assurance that you've done your bit. But ultimately, that's all that it's doing. It's not changing it at the system level. And young people are hyper aware of this equation. You know, I had a conversation with a group of 11 year olds and I was like, you know, what's your feeling towards Starbucks replacing its plastic straws with plastic lids that use more disposable plastic? Saving the planet. Single-handedly saving the planet. (laughs) Done. 
right exactly but like young people are so good at calling out bs and that's exactly what they did they're like this is pervasive greenwashing embedded in yet another report with commitments made far enough into the future that they require no immediate change today sorry 11 year olds were telling you that (laughs) yeah oh wow that's cool i know it's very cool. I have 11-year-olds talking to me about the circular economy and system-level change, invested interests. So, you know, young people are awake and they're bloody smart. Dave, that's um, like you. That's like you as 11. You, you were the only 11-year-old talking about the circular economy when you were 11, but now uh, they're all doing I, it. I had, I had the Blue Peter Green annual and I knew all about recycling. I was proper, proper annoying little bastard, I was. <laughs> what? <laughs> Any change maker in history would tell you that to be effective, to have impact, you must have focus. And so what we encourage young people to do is to connect to the problem that most ignites a fire in their belly, you know, that that gets them frustrated, that gets them riled up, that they could talk to their friends about for hours. Um, And as we were talking about the climate crisis being the symptom of these broken systems, what that also means is that the flip side of how royally we've screwed the planet is how many ways there are to help it. So whether that is prison reform, whether it's food waste, whether it's microplastics from the fashion industry. We encourage young people to get that focus and then we help them to show up to solve those isolated specific problems within the wider collective according to where they're most naturally gifted. So in close tandem to eco-anxiety, you also have burnout. And this is something you'd both be familiar with within the sustainability space and movement is that people invest themselves so heavily and so personally in the issues that it's very easy to completely burn out, to lose all of your energy. And that's because we don't balance well enough taking on the problem with feeling really fulfilled. And as much as it might sound woo-woo, like solving problems in a way that really nourishes you, right? Nourishes your soul. And so we encourage young people to show up to solve their problems according to where they're most naturally gifted. Now, the standardized education system teaches us to become a set of averages, right? To spread ourselves thin across lots of different areas. But we all have our own unique gifts and talents and passions. And if we can show up to solve the problems we care about with those, then we can create legitimate impact. So that's really how we do it. That's our kind of theory of change, to use a super naff term. Um, and all the while deepening our awareness of our mental and emotional landscapes to understand um, which emotions really serve us. You know, anxiety can actually serve us. Frustration, anger, they're emotions that can serve us, even though they can't be sustained for the long, t- uh, the long term because they wake us up to the issues, right? A lot of psychologists would say that a, you know, that more people should be experiencing eco-anxiety, not fewer people. Because eco-anxiety is waking up to the challenge and choosing not to numb yourself to the state of the world. So if you wake up to your own eco-anxiety, you come into awareness with it, then you can begin to think about where you want to create change, right? But if you plaster over over those feelings 
you're, it's a defensive mechanism and it's an understandable one. Um, but we need to wake up to those emotions and then we need to wake up to which of those emotions can actually serve us in the long term to, to be effective and to create change where it matters. So you, uh, you appear on panels and speak at all sorts of like f- faintly terrifying sounding events, which you, you're <laughs> evident, well, you don't appear to be terrified by anyway. But <laughs> I, I'd imagine part of the reason that people ask you to come to these things is because you are a young person, right? And the sure. same, you know, a lot of the youth strikers and Greta being held up by older people saying, here they are, mm-hmm. here are the young people who are going to save it, save us all you know sort it all out does that piss you off does it does it annoy you <laughs> I'm so you? glad you brought that <laughs> does it annoy yes, you the sense that like oh it's okay some some really like motivated and clever young people are going to sort out our mess so here you go motivated clever young people come and tell us 100 percent. 100 percent. I cannot tell you the number of times I've been the token young person on a panel the token young person in a room And it's very much this narrative of, okay, great, we've really messed up the planet. Like, we've made a lot of mistakes. So here's the baton. Good luck. You know, Godspeed. You're going to smash this. And, and, And I often hear that, like, you know, after speeches and things, like, people are saying, great job. You're fighting the good fight. You know, keep going. And I'm like... Are you serious? That's what you took from this? Is that I'm assuming all of the responsibility? No. Like, I'm assuming the bare minimum, which is doing what I believe to be right and taking action on the issues that I care about. You have exactly the same responsibility. It is the responsibility of each and every one of us to step up to solve these problems. Parents, teachers, politicians, business leaders, children. Like, this is a rallying call. And to turn this into some weird, um, romanticized, generational thing where it's like okay great we've we've created the mess now we're handing it over um give gives me an absolute headache 100 percent um so you know and and i think that's what contributes to so much of this eco anxiety right again it's back to this point of young people looking around and saying okay but where are our allies you know why aren't we talking about this why don't we have people supporting us what they most desperately want is for adults in our lives to come alongside us and to say we're going to do everything that we can to take this on together and in fact i believe that that's the only way that we will solve this is through that intergenerational exchange when we bring together the energy of youth with the knowledge of experience um you can't silo out these issues you can't do this from a place of division we need to work with one another um, and this is not in any way one generation and against another. You know, it, it requires every single one of us. Do you find that, uh, I don't want this to come out wrong, so I'm just going to ask it and you can tell me if I'm an ass. <laughs> do you, do oh, you find that being a younger person allows you to say stuff that you think if you were 20 years older, you might find it harder to say? Um, so I guess mm. um, one of the things about Greta is she's kind of impossible to argue with her because she's just holding this position of moral authority and is kind of uncorrupted mm. and it obviously doesn't have an agenda. And I'm wondering whether you find that happens and if it does, whether that's useful or patronising or both. 
Yeah, so I my first job out of high school was when I was 17 years old. I was working in Silicon Valley with people who were much more experienced, had college degrees, ticked all of those boxes. And I always thought of my age as a weakness. And so I did everything that I could to conform into that system and to try and fit in and to to fit the mold. And yet as more and more young people stepped up and as the world turned its attention to 16-year-old Greta and listened, I realized that, in fact, my youth, my naive optimism, my energy, my objective perspective on these systems, which I was inheriting, I realized that they were my greatest strength. And lots of young people do not act because they see that age as a limitation. Mm. And yet I do believe it's our greatest strength because while throughout our lives we learn to become complacent to these systems, right? We learn to conform to the status quo. We learn to report to hierarchies. Um, Young people come into this situation with the context of us being in an emergency, right? And we see everything that is possible, we see the opportunities for change. We see the invitation to rethink so much of how we live, breathe, and exist in the 21st century. And that is incredibly exciting. So I think my age absolutely gives me so much more license and so much more freedom to have that courage of imagination. And, and you know, it's something I've talked about with my dad a lot. You know, he was a very... Uh, active kind of protester during during the Vietnam War and he was very idealistic about the future and yet when I was growing up he often tried to suppress some of my own idealism um, which I think huh. happens a lot right is like you become quite jaded by the world and you try to wake young people up to but yeah. this is how things have always been done and yet we realize that we can't continue business as usual and so we need the radicalism of youth 100%. Thing you have said all day. <laughs> so you've you've got a fantastic podcast, which is also called Force of Nature. And uh, Dave, I can see Dave bristling because he doesn't like it when I, I don't say like other people. Advert- no people other podcast have podcasts. When you have listened to every episode of Sustainable twice, you're allowed to go listen to other podcasts. Yes. Okay. So when you've done that, go and listen to Clover's podcast, um, as I did uh, and do, and I listened to the the frankly wonderful Caroline Hickman on your on oh, your podcast. She's brilliant. Yes. Where you you talk about the kind of the starry eyed vision of the future that your your parents had, or you know your parents' generation had, frankly, when when they were. Mm young um and you know but but kids now for obvious reasons look into the future with a certain amount of of trepidation but Mm. is there a risk that actually it's the other way around that that we are at risk of kind of self-fulfilling prophecies and and that because we look into the future and see terrible things unfolding because that's what the science says is going to happen unless we change everything we then prepare for that mentally and we in a sense, help it come about? Yeah, I mean, that's something that I find quite dangerous about this story of societal collapse. And 
you know, Jem Bendel's work, for example, around deep adaptation is often misinterpreted as saying, okay, well, it's too late to do anything, so let's just resign ourselves to that dystopian fate. That's really dangerous territory because both unadulterated hope and despair allow us to sit on the sidelines. Mm. You know, if we're hyper-optimistic and super techno-utopian and say, oh, you know, our governments will figure it out or technology will save the day, as has been the narrative for for decades, um, then it allows us to disengage from the issues, right? And and it, it allows us to engage and disavow, right? Placing responsibility on other people. If we resign ourselves to despair, then what's the point of doing anything, right? Um, you know, it's too late. The future's out of my control. I'm just one person. Again, all of those self-limiting stories we subscribe to. So the key is to become comfortable with the gray area, the messy middle. And it isn't a matter of vacillating between both despair and hope or despair and optimism, but holding the tension between the two and realizing that as, as humans, one of our great gifts is the ability to entertain multiplicity and paradox, right? And how I've managed to navigate that in my own career is to detach a little bit from attachment to outcome. So one of the reasons that so many young people burn out is that we fight for specific demands. We fight for specific changes. When those changes that are fundamentally outside of our control do not happen or they don't happen at the pace required, that can be incredibly disempowering and it can lead us to believe that we're powerless. But if we show up to solve those problems shooting for the moon, shooting for the stars, and yet do it just because we know in the present moment that it's the right thing to do. That is what's going to sustain our activism. And it's what's going to enable us to show up every single day. Sorry to interrupt, but it's like it's making us think of, yeah. um, we've been talking a bit about Rebecca Solnit on here over the last few months and optimism mm. and hope and where you find that. And, and I guess one of the things she talks about mm-hmm. is like just perhaps hope is found in doing what you can do and trusting that it might, mm. that, that someone's going to notice, you know? Um, yeah, and it sounds, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we, we, we love black and white, right? We love to be super reductionist and, mm. and it's trick. It's really tricky when you're communicating on, on climate because we can say, you know, more or less the science shows us that we have this critical 10 year window. And yet the reality is we don't know which climate tipping points we've already pushed over the edge. You know, we don't know that maybe through some fluke, we have an extra five years to change that part of society. So the reality is we've already subscribed ourselves to a certain level of breakdown, right? We've already triggered certain feedback loops that are going to be near impossible to reverse. And yet there is so much left to fight for, right? And it's being, it's, embracing the history of the damage we've already done and the role that each and every one of us has played in creating that while also being able to have the courage of imagination. And one thing that you talked about all was, you know, when we look to the future and see this very dystopian kind of vision, something we're not doing well enough in the climate space is articulating what that better, brighter future could look like. And so many of us are lacking that vision. 
we're unable to look forward and see what that world looks like. As much as we're responding to the issues, we need to remind ourselves of what it is we're working toward. And that doesn't always need to be an abstract vision in the future. It starts with identifying where that future already exists today, because it does. And there are so many pockets of that future in the present. Incredible individuals who are stepping up to the challenge, incredible people from every corner who in the face of adversity are achieving awesome solutions to this crisis. And so that's what we need to focus on. So that is just about it for another episode of Sustainer Babble. Thank you very, very much to Clover, obviously, for coming and chatting to us and chatting. Uh, wow just with such kind of wisdom and insight and and unlike certain other people I could mention finishing her sentences thank you very much Clover um, yes you can get <laughs> it's really hard finishing sentences I know like well, but, well, I know. how are you supposed to finish a sentence when you start it not knowing what it's going to say it's Come like on. it's like Germans Germans put the verbs at the end so they have to know what they're saying when they start it's quite impressive that's why they're so organised <gasps> I've no idea if that's that a does make a lot of sense. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we uh, will be back next week, won't we, all? So you can get in touch with us. And you we can tell uh, us. will uh, be back yes, uh, next quite. week. Yes. I don't know. I don't know how people say how people pay attention to anything for any time at all. It's just a miracle. I was just I'm genuinely just looking at something shiny and thinking that's a shiny thing. Um, you can get in touch with us and tell us what you thought of the show. Can't you all help? Yeah, help. get in How touch do you do with that? Us tell, tell us what you thought of the bit where Clover was speaking. Not yes, this bit. Not don't, this bit. Don't tell Bumbling us about this amateurs. Bit. Oh, you can send us an email uh, hello at sustainababble.fish. You can get in touch with us on the Twitter. We are at the Babble Wagon or we're on Facebook. Just search Sustainababble. And if you want to dole us out a bit of dosh to help with the running costs of this mighty organ, you can do so at Patreon, the wobbly 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 dot patreon.com slash sustainababble. Thank you colossally to all of those people who do but you know we could always do with a bit more i think that is just about it other than to thank dickie moore for the wonderful music uh that begins and ends and intertwinkles this podcast uh and to thank can i just my, can I, can, uh, do you want to tell everyone how what happened then what yeah <laughs> well i was just doing my usual kind of and uh, uh thing while dave was miming playing the guitar or i thought it was the banjo and i was trying to work out whether it was the banjo or the guitar and then i realized what he was trying to say was you haven't thanked dickie yet and right. i clocked it just in time so there we go right this, that's I, mu- it. I must, I've had I must use this. more i must use more hand signals to tell you what i think of you at any particular time <laughs> no 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 you mustn't. <laughs> i've had enough of this i'm going now thanks bye bye